Welcome to the More Than a Game, a story about football and other stuff podcast. In October 2019, the racist abuse directed at black members of the England team playing in a quali- Euro qualifier in Bulgaria made worldwide headlines and led the news bulletins on British TV for several days. Politicians, players and managers of the Premier League lined up to condemn the behavior of a section of the Bulgarian fans. And while right-minded people applauded the show's outrage and support, some viewers were left a little bemused. After all, hadn't similar behavior happened in English soccer grounds for at least four decades? Of course, there had been laudable attempts to get racism out of football during that time, yet none of them had attracted the sustained and high-profile media treatment that was given to what had happened on the October evening in Bulgaria. Was it because the victims of the episode of racist abuse were members of very of a very elite band of sportsmen, or that the abuse happened in front of millions of viewers? Or could I mischievously venture that there was a section of the British media who were greatly disgruntled that it was foreigners doling up the abuse rather than their own? During that brief period of introspection, it was reported that to the obvious incredulity of some of the contributors that racist abuse didn't just happen at the very apex of football but also at a lower leagues, and perhaps at amateur and school levels too. It is the aim of this series of podcasts to discuss the sum of the experiences of amateur black footballers who simply played for the joy of it, but who had to endure the worst kind of abuse that went mostly unnoticed and unreported. The conversations are intended to be wide-ranging, thought-provoking, and entertaining as an attempt to find out just how did the cancer called racism infect the beautiful game. Has it developed from within, or is it what is happening in the football merely a reflection of what goes on in society? To get the conversation going, I'm delighted to have the author Ralph Robb, as well as music promoter, documentary researcher, and one-time football player Steve Byfield with me today. Ralph Robb wrote the novel More Than a Game, a story about football and other stuff, in 2006, and by coincidence, it was republished shortly before that ill-fated game in Bulgaria. The story is set in 1981 at a time of great social upheaval in Britain in the industrial town of Wolverhampton, the destination of my grandparents who had immigrated from Jamaica in the 1960s and where Ralph was born and brought up. More Than a Game attracted some very positive reviews and was described by one as an enjoyable and eye-opening slice of 1980s life, politics and people. And so I would like to start off by giving you a short extract. The story took place in 1981. As I recall, it was a time of unreliable cars and scratchy vinyl records, of industrial strife and mass employment, most of which was blamed on the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who was doing a fair impression of the Wicked Witch of the North. People who had become a surplus to her requirements reacted to her government's policies throughout the land with protest, riot, and rage. To me, the early 1980s now seem a strange and backward time. There were no mobile phones, nor home computers. There were only three terrestrial stations and no satellite TV. It was a time of different labels and descriptions. Starbursts were called opal fruits and Snickers were marathon bars. It was a time when Michael Jackson was still black and people of a skin tone similar to the one that he was born with were called nicknogs on British TV sitcoms just for a laugh. Mrs. Thatcher was on the go. We had 
the National Front walking around the streets in London, where I grew up, they were randomly attacking uh, black people in the streets. But I was involved in resisting the National Front with a group of uh, friends. We used to have a running uh, battle with the skinheads on the streets of London. That was a, a significant part of my teens. When I was growing up, right, there weren't so much running battles with uh, skinheads and National Fronters. It was more so to do with uh, football supporters on a Saturday evening. At a certain time right. of the day or a certain time of the evening, I would make sure I'd be sitting at home watching TV, my mom's soup or whatever, because I knew if you're wandering the streets at that time of the evening when those football fans are coming out, the run of chance that you get caught in a crossfire. So, whereas you were uh, battling the National Front, we I was kind of keeping away from the, uh, maybe the same kind of people, the same ideologies, right, coming out of football matches. Tell me what the National Front, Margaret Thatcher, those of us who don't know what those things mean, what is that? Margaret Thatcher was the United Kingdom's first female Prime Minister, serving from 1979 until 1990. During her time in office, she smashed the trade unions, privatized certain industries, scaled back public benefits and changed the terms of political debate. The longest serving British Prime Minister of the 20th century, Thatcher was eventually pressured into resigning by members of her own Conservative Party. Put it this way, when she passed away, people celebrated with parties in the streets. So. Moving back to the book, Ralph, you published the book last year and attracted some great reviews. And one reviewer called it a historical fiction, and it does reference some of the events of the time, such as the widespread rioting. How much of it was based on real life and things that happened to you and people that you knew? Well, the book itself, right, was a work of fiction. But it was uh, pulled from experiences from people who are new in the community, people who have actually played football, amateur football, and as I said, right, uh, the club itself, Sabrina Park Rangers, was pulled from two, or a combination of two clubs had played in Wolverhampton at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, the head coach, a man from Jamaica, Horace, he was again pulled from several people, an amalgamate from some people who I knew at the time. So, Growing up, listening to all the, all the men, the way they thought of the world, the way they thought of the way people from Jamaica, their kids are turning out, I tried to work some of that into the book as well. So the situations were all correct? And the, the situations were very much, but Paul has said, was pulled from experiences I've heard people talk about. So it's a work of fiction drawn from real life. And Steve, when you were reading the book and you read the pages, could you see how that mirrored your life as a um, former footballer as well? Every single character in the book reminds me of people that I grew up with. The experience of the whole football team and the the things that happened to them are things that I've experienced personally. Did you you have a, a sibling as well? Both of my brothers played football. And okay. I have a couple of cousins who who played professionally. Okay. I always remember having a coach who, with the season starting around September, if I remember rightly, 
you played in the earlier parts of the season, but when it got to October, November time, suddenly you would find you weren't playing. This led to me kind of being in confrontation with the, with, with the coach and other people in the club. And it finally came out that this coach believed that black players couldn't play in the winter. <laughs> and this this went to uh, I wanted to punch him in the face I have to be honest and was this an opinion that came from somewhere or just something that he naively believed no no it was it was a common thing in society at the time because I remember exactly when I was an, an apprentice just started to work mm -hmm. as an engineer and apprentice this sort of thing was common in the lunchroom whilst yes. they're going to the sun reading the reviews of the game before yeah yeah, absolutely. This kind of thing that was so common, it's to an extent to where it used to allocate certain positions for certain black, which would allow black people to have. And certain positions was too uh, intellectually complicated for them to play. I see. Okay. I've never played uh, amateur football, obviously, never played professional football either, but I used to play continually as a child growing up. Also, I used to play at the school level, as a lot of us do. But going back to your question, Kimi, on uh, how it affected you in life and later life, I chose my first after soccer, because I've seen the nonsense what was happening, so I chose uh, track and field, because that thought is very difficult to, to portray that kind of discrimination. It's first cross the line or whoever could throw the fire or jump the highest. So I was telling you, I went towards track and field. Uh, more so than soccer afterwards. Plus, I wasn't that good at soccer anyway. By then, the team had been going for over a decade and had changed its name twice, but had finally settled with the Sabina Park Rangers for half that period. It was a name that evoked happy memories for the coach, who as a youth had watched the Jamaican national team play in Sabina Park Stadium in Kingston. Horace McIntosh had ambitions for the young men who played for him. They were not particularly grand, but he wanted them to expand their horizons a little further than the town's smoky boundaries. He believed football would give them a purpose and a sense of achievement that wasn't exactly plentiful, as he saw it in a lot of their lives. When his team moved from a town to an area league, he decided they needed a new name, one that had cultural reference, but that was not overtly provocative to some of the white teams. In the early 1970s, his players had traveled to areas where there were few or no black people, and the team members were sometimes greeted as if they'd just landed from outer space. Normally, such trips pass without trouble, but in rougher areas, home teams would often bring a gang with them if they saw their next fixture was against a side whose name included words such as Afro, West Indian, Caribbean, Punjab, or Black. The thugs were rarely up to much. They'd jeer during the match and throw stones at the minibus as it was leaving, but there were, had been other incidents that had escalated into more serious violence. Once, after some guys on the sidelines made monkey noises, a mass brawl had broken out. Playing on the pitch, which obviously is majority white, what was the attitude from some of the other players you played with? I've seen headbutts, amongst, amongst you, I'm talking about your own team members. Oh, but, yes. yes. the opposition team, your team. Well, in, in, in terms of the racism yeah the racist comments would come from your own team lacking stamina 
mm-hmm. couldn't play in the in the in the cold, etc. There was also other baggage that they attributed to black players. You were supposed to have a bad attitude. So when you made a mistake, people would openly abuse you. And that didn't always go the way they expected. I've seen people punched in the face, headbutted. And I've got to tell you, in my case, I was a black belt at 15. I've jumped up and kicked people in the face on the football field. (laughs) And see, that's mind-blowing to me because I... In my head, I've always believed that you're as strong as your weakest player on your team. So you'd want a team that gels and stuck up for each other. You'd go further. So it's weird that the coach wouldn't think of that way and want a team that was cohesive. Now, the reason why I asked that question, right, because I've, I've never played football at all at that level. But I used to play a lot of rugby after I'd finished karate. Okay? Mm. Now, I don't know whether it's, it's, it draws from a, a different crowd of people with different mindsets, but none of that happened on a rugby pitch. I don't, again, I don't know because of whether or not it was because it was a violent game to begin with. You ain't going to run the risk of antagonizing your own teammates to such an extent. I think it's a factor. Yeah, but I also found that in a rugby pitch, a rugby match, if, another, if one of the opposing team right was to racially abuse you, your own teammates right would mark that guy and he's going to get it from somebody before the end of the match. That was common sense. It was more of an, uh, a unifying factor. And where you look after them and they look after your back. Playing, right, in, a, in an early soccer, that didn't, that didn't apply. So could it be that a lot of the black people gathered to play rugby, whereas no. soccer no. was a more... That did not apply, that did not apply uh, when I was playing rugby anyway, because there's only like two, three of the most black guys on the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that wouldn't apply. I think as uh, you may have suggested earlier, right, it was definitely a class thing. Okay. It was a class thing. So that's where that saying comes in. Rugby is a game of thugs played by gentlemen. Soccer is a game of gentlemen played by thugs. The race issue has started to creep into rugby in the UK, hasn't it, with, with certain yeah. recent incidents. I think it's a, an interesting point. Maybe it is a class thing. On the class, there was a lot of people um, here for rugby when I was younger. It was always the elite teams, so you had to have a certain amount of money to play on these teams. You had to fundraise this money, and if you were from a place where you were always working to help support your family, there's no way you could ever play. You could be the best player ever, and you would never make it to that level where all the rich or more wealthy people would play. So it's kind of wow. similar in that respect. Wow. I, I, I find soccer is such a strange game at the best of times, you know, especially when you, when you start to uh, mix in this tribalism aspect of it. Okay, one of the things that was one of the things that certainly kept me away from attending mm-hmm. football games because I knew the violence, what happened there, and I knew I would be like a magnet for a certain percentage of that violence. So I ain't going nowhere near the Molyneux to play. But I, I wouldn't go to a football match now. No, but strange. When I, when I came over to Canada first, I went to watch a uh, Canadian football match. Canadian, Canadian football is like American football, but the rules are just slightly different. And I remember going, walking to the stadium, I was looking around and I was horrified because they were mixing the fans. There was no segregation or nothing. I thought, Jesus Christ, someone's going to die because of my mentality that it was going to turn out like an English soccer match. But the crowd mixing, they were still throwing banter at each other, right? Still friendly, jibing each other, but there's no aggression 
in the stanza whatsoever, which I find so strange and a little bit uplifting at the same time. So where does yeah. this banter, like where does the uh, violence come in? Why is there violence at a soccer game versus an American? Yeah. I believe it. And would you say that this is something that is pushed forward by the media and by the government? Like it goes beyond just the fans and beyond the players themselves? Years and years of social conditioning. Yeah. Yes. You can't just, you can't just uh, eliminate that, right, by, by changing the law and saying it's illegal to do this or illegal to say that. That ain't going to change it. It's going to take, I don't know what's going to change it to tell the truth. It's going to take a lot more than just here saying a, f a few, you know, a few pounds spending here and there. I can't disagree with that. I think you, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, describing how deep, how, how deeply rooted it is. I, I definitely agree with that. I don't think there's ever been a time where, this is my opinion, that a go at government level, they've ever fanned the flames of these attitudes more. They've realized, they've quickly realized that when they blow the dog whistle, everybody responds to it. And I think that they're using that now as a weapon. And, and as a consequence, things have got worse. That's so true. It's, I could see the place here, south of the border here as well in America. When Trump blows his whistle, his dogs react. So it's yes. kind of like you plant the ideas, plant the ideas, and you stir the pot and watch what happens kind of thing. Yeah. And who knows where it's going to go, but it's a different and more dangerous level that we've just arrived at now. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. And I think I the agree. use of social media, people hiding behind their screens more, being able to say what they want without having the repercussion of being face-to-face -face to say it to somebody definitely has made it worse. In the 1980s, all of the riots where I lived in Brixton, I, and I was there, it was in my area, and I was just as angry as everybody else. That was a reaction to the stop and search. Mm -hmm. What happened, and, and the sus laws, what happened in Brixton, the catalyst was when they shot Cherry Gross. They went looking for her son, apparently, yeah. went into the house. Cherry Gross was, a, was asleep in bed. Uh, they shot her three or four times. And that was the catalyst that brought everybody out on the street. But it was a, another incident in a long line of incidents. Yeah. Uh, now, it, it, it's kind of strange how I keep, I, I keep going back to what's happening in the, in the States at the moment and trying to work it into what's got happening in the UK as well. But you mentioned that it was a time of unity where it pulled all black people to, together to react as one. And it's strange that today it's still a form of unity, but it's, it's much more interracial. There's in some cases in the States, I've seen far more white people coming out to march and to throw rocks than black people. I, I think it's worth saying that it sort of was back then as well. In Brixton it was anyway. It was, okay. I went, I went. Not to the extent that it is now. Okay. Back then, it's mostly young people. There's a wider range of, of age groups now. Yeah. I almost feel like it's a wider range of, of ages because it's people who witnessed this back in the 70s and 80s what you're talking about right now have grown up and now they're older and they're almost we're almost looking up to them seeing what they've gone through and they want to support us and what's frustrating is you think there would have been more change by now both in sports and in our normal lives and there isn't that change 
Um, no. And no. listening to you talk about the shooting that went on, the girl that was shot back in the, I think you said the 70s or 80s, it almost yeah, mirrors exactly the catalyst that's happened today with Breonna Taylor. Oh, yes. It's the yes. shooting and it's a one yes. event. That is a lost on me. Event. Yeah. And yes. it's, it's kind of yeah. frustrating in a way to see that we haven't progressed. See all policies, right? The whole policy is still the same. The, the, those who make the power, they've still got the same attitude, but on the ground level, on the social level, on the street level, a lot of, a lot of uh, progression has been made. Uh, I, I'd like to think so, uh, but I'm not sure. I mean, how many people have to die? When I rioted on the streets of London in 1981, it did make a difference. Things were better afterwards. And I can understand why it would flood onto the football field as well, because you can't really keep the political, that political stuff outside when the racism is going on in the inside. It's just threatening to just go to a level that I don't think any of us have seen before. So we're going to look at the 80s and look at today. Hopefully we progressed a little bit. What's the differences or the comparisons between football in the 80s and football today? Do you see that things have progressed and it is getting better? Racism? I, I don't. I don't. I think it's getting worse and it's becoming more entrenched and more dangerously, more acceptable. But, but don't, don't, I understand your point. I could see everything you're saying there, Steve. But don't you think it's changed to the extent that, where I, I see, we'll look at, I know we're talking about football in Britain, but I look at football, like say, in the French team, where quite a big percentage of them are black. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, that would never have happened. So how did the French go from that to where they are today? Mm -hmm. Is the policies different in France or, or are they going through exactly the same things we are going through over here in, uh, in England at the moment? I think it's exactly and, and the same. And there's, sorry? I think it's exactly the same. In exactly the same. Yeah. How, how did they arrive beyond so many black players on their team? Yeah, well, uh, it's hard to say, isn't it? But I mean, there's, a, there's, a definite, there's definitely a problem. The, you know, every time you think you understand the issue, it changes. Yeah. It's amazing uh, to me as well, reading this book and listening to you guys talk. I honestly, I'm younger, obviously, but I never knew this much politics and thought within religion and race went into playing a simple sport where you kick a ball into a net. Like, that's what my, is mind-blowing to me. Before I begin to tell you what befell the young men who made up the Sabina Park Rangers football team, I feel I should first give you a few ideas about the place and time in which they played. The place was a town in decline called Wolverhampton, and it was principally known for the factories and foundries that for the most part no longer existed, and the Wolves team that had won the league championship three times during the 1950s. Besides footballers such as Billy Wright, Jimmy Mullen, Ron Flowers, and much later Derek Dugan, one of its most well-known inhabitants was the local MP Enoch Powell. He represented the town for almost a quarter of a century, and in an infamous speech he drew a nation's attention to a fading political career when he made it clear that he did not want so many black and brown people in England. Whatever the other consequences, his speech linked the name of Wolverhampton with prejudice and anti-immigrant movements for a very long time to come. No one involved with the Sabina Park Rangers, who were all of Caribbean background, could tell you what Powell had said. But they knew, if only because of the reaction in the media, that there had been no mention of an appreciation of the spirit of calypso or reggae music, 
and he certainly wasn't looking to embrace any of his West Indian constituents whilst proclaiming one love. Over the next few weeks, we'll be covering a wide range of topics, all relating to discrimination within the Black community, homophobia, misogyny, etc., etc. Make sure to join our Facebook group, More Than a Game. It's time to tackle racism, or perhaps visit our website at www.ralphrob.com. Do you have questions or comments? Email us at ralph at ralphrob.com. I'm Kimberly Ravando-Rob, and I am signing out. Signing out.